This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. Last time I mentioned my plans to travel to Delaware for the Intercollegiate Studies Institute homecoming event. My friend Sean Southern and I traveled there where we met up with Gary Gregg of the McConnell Center. We had a great time exploring the area, including a stop at Baldwin's Book Barn in Westchester, Pennsylvania. It was the kind of bookstore I hadn't been to in a while. Four stories of books housed in a two-centuries-old building. I didn't have nearly enough time to explore like I wanted, but you absolutely should stop by if you find yourself anywhere near there. I also got to meet and chat with former Cultural Debris guest Samuel Goldman, literary editor of Modern Age and author of the new book After Nationalism. Daniel McCarthy, editor of Modern Age, was there, as was Annette Kirk and her daughter Cecilia with her husband Jeff Nelson. It was nice seeing them again after a couple of years. I was able to see my old friend Mitch and meet another new e-friend, the lovely Sarah. It was nice to travel again and have fellowship with kindred souls. Some of you may have noticed a refresh of the Cultural Debris logo and graphics. I owe my friend Rachel Sinclair a big thank you for her work making it happen. Rachel is a highly talented graphic designer and artist, and I recommend her highly. You can find her on Twitter at SinclairArt, and I've linked her website in show notes. I also want to recommend a podcast to you that I've found both entertaining and enlightening. It's called Bad Books of the Bible and is hosted by my online friend Joel Miller and his co-host Jamie Bennett. The podcast is all about the books of the Bible, often called the Apocrypha. For someone like me who has not really explored them like I have the rest of Scripture, it's a big help and also just a fun listen. You'll enjoy it. I have a link to their website in show notes. William Newton, a past guest on Cultural Debris, shared with me a very kind note a listener sent him who had listened to William's interview. That interview spurred the listener to watch some lectures on art by William and seek further book recommendations. That's the sort of thing that warms a podcaster's otherwise cold heart. My hope here is not only to entertain listeners as much as possible, but also open the doors of inquiry and further exploration. My guests certainly do that for me, and I hope they do that for you as well. Recently arrived is the Folio Society facsimile edition of the Four Gospels. It was originally produced by the Golden Cockerel Press in 1931, and it is certainly one of the most beautiful books of the 20th century featuring type design and engravings by the great artist and typographer Eric Gill. The interplay of typography and engravings is really amazing how they intertwine and and are dependent upon one another. This copy is beautiful and certainly is as close as I'll ever get to having the original. The Folio Society is one of the great publishers of beautiful books today, and they are well worth supporting. This episode's poem is by the man who is also the subject of this episode, C.S. Lewis, and the poem is called Our Daily Bread. We need no barbarous words nor solemn spell to raise the unknown. It lies before our feet. There have been men who sank down into hell in some suburban street, and some there are that in their daily walks have met archangels fresh from the sight of God, or watched how in their beans and cabbage stalks long files of fairy trod. Often, me too, the living voices call, in many a vulgar and habitual place, I catch a sight of lands beyond the wall, I see a strange God's face. And some day this work will work upon me, so I shall arise and leave both friends and home, and over many lands a pilgrim go through alien woods and foam. Seeking the last steep edges of the earth whence I may leap into that gulf of light, wherein, before my narrowing self had birth, part of me lived, 
aright. My guest is Father Michael Ward of Blackfriars Hall, Oxford, and also of Houston Baptist University. Father Ward has an enviable trifecta in his academic pedigree, degrees from Oxford, Cambridge, and St. Andrews. Father Ward is perhaps best known for his book, Planet Narnia, which explains the correlation of each Narnia book to a planet in medieval cosmology. We don't talk about that at all. His recently released book, From Word on Fire Academic, After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, is the primary subject of our discussion. But we also talk about James Bond. Father Michael Ward, welcome to Cultural Debris. Alan Cornett, thank you for having me on Cultural Debris. I'm glad to be with you. Well, it is indeed an honor to have you here. You uh, have have been described by no less a personage than N.T. Wright as the foremost living Lewis scholar. So that's uh, that's high praise, I, I feel like. Yeah, there's glory for you, as Humpty Dumpty said. I think it was Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> Uh, though I think it's it was certainly untrue when uh, Tom Wright said it, because um, the the foremost living Lewis scholar was undoubtedly Walter Hooper uh, when Tom Wright wrote those words. Alas, Walter Hooper died in December, so perhaps there's now a, a, a smidgen of a, a chance that <laughs> Tom Wright is is correct, but that's not for me to say. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's in, in this life we take what we can get, so uh, uh, he uh, he is someone I would. Uh, feel like uh, who ought to know he is and I have a, a number of of his volumes on my shelf and certainly someone I have a lot of respect for so yes. uh, we'll, we'll take those words with uh, as high honor certainly you are uh, also senior research fellow at Blackfriars Hall in Oxford where I uh, assume you are now that's and, correct yes. I'm uh, and, from England and professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University which is a little closer uh, to home for us Americans, um, and you teach a class on Christian apologetics there, I believe you mentioned. That's right. Yeah, I teach one course in the spring on C.S. Lewis and another course in the fall on Lewis, Tolkien, Chesterton, and MacDonald. Uh, and oh, it's all online. Right. It's all online, so I um, I don't have to go to Houston in person except for one week a year when I'm there to give lectures and meet my colleagues. Um, that's usually in March. But uh, yeah, if, if any of your listeners are interested in Christian apologetics, um, particularly literary and imaginative apologetics, uh, they might want to check out the, the MA program that we do at HBU. Well, absolutely. And that, uh, that list sounds like uh, qu- quite, quite the list for the cultural debris listener. That's sort of a, a, sort of a Mount Rushmore of, uh, <laughs> of interesting figures for us. So, <laughs> mm. so uh, it, it sounds like a wonderful, wonderful class. And I, uh, I probably should look into that myself. You uh, also hold a doctor of divinity from St. Andrews, which is the, uh, the university where my old boss, Russell Kirk, received his doctorate many years ago and uh, wrote The Conservative Mind as his uh, his dissertation. So that's uh, also a nice little connection here for uh, for cultural debris. We're, we're Russell Kirk admirers here. Yeah. How was how was your time at St. Andrews? It was great. Um, I, I joined St. Andrews the same year that Prince William went there. Um, ah, very nice. Of course, he met his wife there, uh, but he was an undergraduate and I was a graduate student, so our, our paths didn't cross, except once I bumped into him almost literally in a cafe in St. Andrews. He was coming in as I was going out. Uh, he, he tried to look inconspicuous with a baseball cap pulled down low over his head and his collar pulled up <laughs> high. Um, but when you're being shadowed on the pavement outside by a, a burly man trying to look even more inconspicuous <laughs> and, a, and a police car 30 yards down the road, <laughs> uh, it's it's hard. But but he, he enjoyed his time at St. Andrews, and so did I. It's a great university. Uh, very good. I would think that, that St. Andrews uh, would be a difficult town to hide in. It's not particularly large. and so. Uh, mm, so but I think, actually, that was all to the good for Prince William because oh, um, sure. the, the locals just treated him as one of their own, whereas if he'd gone to a university you know, in a big city, he would have become the target of, uh, you know, 
a paparazzi more easily, I think. I'm, I'm sure that's true. Well, you are the author of a brand new book cut off the press from Word on Fire Academic called After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And that is the primary reason why we're talking, although I, I hope to touch on a few other subjects. What led you to write about uh, the abolition of man particularly? Uh, I was asked to write a foreword to an edition of The Abolition of Man. And although that foreword never actually saw the light of day, it, it, it grew and it grew and it grew until it had become a sort of standalone book in its own right. And, and that book, by some by some twists and turns of fate, ended up being published uh, wonderfully. I, I'm very pleased that this is how it's turned out, by uh, Word on Fire Academic. Uh, it's the second of their new line uh, of academic books. The first was Holly Ordway's Tolkien's Modern Reading. You had her on Cultural Debris, I believe, a few months ago. That, about that. that is correct. Uh, uh, Holly was kind enough to to talk with us for a while, and it, and her her book is is really fascinating uh, in its in its look at Tolkien. She's clearly doing and has done some extremely important work uh, there. I think. Yeah, I agree. It's an excellent book, and I say that not only because she kindly dedicated the book to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she used she used to be a professor at Houston Baptist University like me before she went to work for Word on Fire. So we're friends and colleagues. And um, I was honoured and delighted that uh, Tolkien's Modern Reading should have been dedicated to me because I think it's an excellent book. Really, really good. It is. And, and she and I had a had a great conversation about it and look forward to having a, a conversation with you about this. Word on Fire Academic seems to be doing uh, excellent work, and I, I look forward to uh, to seeing the, the books that they have coming out in the future, for sure. Yeah, I think the next one is going to be a, a book by Bishop Barron, uh, though I'm not quite sure of the topic. Well, I am an admirer of Bishop Barron, so I'm sure that the book will be will be excellent. We'll have to see if we can get him for the podcast. Uh, mm. and, uh, <laughs> that uh, that uh, it may be like uh, like going after the white whale there, but you never know. You never, you never know. know. Shoot for the moon, and yeah, might as well try. Yeah. So, what is it about the abolition of man that is that is so important? What what makes it important for this kind of treatment? Well, there are several reasons why it's an important book. Uh, and, and one that we might start off by mentioning is, is the fact that C.S. Lewis himself regarded it as, as, a, as an important work. He, he, he said that it was almost my favorite among my books. And that Hideous Strength, the third volume in his Ransom trilogy, um, which has behind it the abolition of man as its sort of philosophical basis, was a novel that Lewis himself, again, described as uh, his favorite among the uh, the trilogy of, of Ransom books. Um, so the ideas surrounding the abolition of man and its fictional counterpart uh, were evidently very important to, to Lewis. Um, and I, I have a chapter in the book about the some of the reasons behind that. We, we can get into that in a moment. But other people have agreed with Lewis. Uh, you know, Walter Hooper, whom I just mentioned, has said that the abolition of man is is an all but indispensable introduction to the entire corpus of Louisiana. It's been described as the linchpin of all his works. And the long-lasting and wide-ranging um, audience for the book testifies to its importance i think it's 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 got it's got a, a a broad readership from catholics protestants atheists it's it's not a particularly um exclusively christian work of apologetics it's much more philosophical than that that helps account for its uh, wide popularity um and then thirdly uh, it's it's just very timely for our day, perhaps even more so than Lewis's time, uh, because the the growth in subjectivism, which is his target in the book, uh, has has only accelerated and increased uh, since the 1940s when he delivered the lectures on which the book is based. So for all those reasons, uh, Lewis's opinion, the opinion of, of scholars and critics and readers more generally, and, and its timeliness, uh, everybody ought to know about the abolition of man. Well, you, you touch on its timeliness uh, 
well throughout, but uh, in your con- in your conclusion, you talk about the work as a work of prophecy, and and I I, I was interested in what you ha- had to say about that as as not something that was simply responding to a was essentially a transitory uh, textbook. I mean, there's there's little that's more transitory than a textbook mm. these days. Uh, but it, it does have a a timelessness to it and a timeliness to it that that you describe as prophetic. Yes, a prophet is someone who's defined as someone who both um, foretells and tells forth. Um, you know, there's prescience uh, to Lewis's argument. He, he's seeing where things are heading. Um, he's forecasting where subjectivism will take us. Um, but, you know, a lot of what he had to say was was very apropos, even in 1943, when he wrote the book, um, because, you know, a, a move away from recognition of objective value um, had been going on for, for decades, maybe even centuries, depending on how you um, determine its origin as a philosophical uh, malaise. Um, so yes, it's, um, it's, a, it's a book that has only really grown in its relevance, I think, since, since Lewis first wrote it. You, you touched on this just a moment ago, but uh, the, the book is is not really an overtly Christian apologetic, which you talk about in your in your uh, opening chapters, but it is it's an appeal uh, from Lewis to a to a much wider audience. You talked about how different different people who have responded to it positively, including atheists, but he is he's drawing from essentially a natural law understanding of of objective morals. Why do you think that he Someone so famous, so well known for his overtly Christian apologetics, would would write a book that that appeals to the Tao rather than to to Christianity. I think it's partly because he himself had come to a recognition of the objectivity of value long before he called himself either a theist or a Christian. So he knew that uh, it was possible, philosophically speaking to recognize the objectivity of value without a Christian commitment. So it had that sort of personal reason behind it. Uh, And then, you know, much more sort of um, relevant to his to his status as a Christian apologist in 1943. um, You know, he I think he, he wanted to, as it were, wrong foot those who would assume that he he only had Christian arguments to make. Uh, But of course, he had been trained in philosophy. He'd studied classical philosophy as an undergraduate. His first teaching job at Oxford had been in philosophy. And he never either studied or taught theology. Um, So his his works of popular theology as a Christian apologist were were not works that sprang from his own academic um, expertise, whereas philosophy was one of his realms of academic expertise. Uh, he, he continued to teach philosophy at Oxford even after he took on his fellowship uh, in English at Magdalen College. And not many people seem to be aware of that fact, but it's something I try to highlight in my book. Um, that, you know, Lewis, we ought to think of Lewis not principally as a Christian apologist um, from a, you know, from a professional point of view. We should think of him first as an English literary critic and historian, secondly, as a philosopher, and only thirdly, as a, you know, a very popular theologian. Um, I think that's how he saw himself. Um, but of course, you know, the popularity of works like Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain and so on, have, have tended to overshadow his, his more, uh, you know, strictly academic works. In our time, with the increased secularization that that we face, it seems like the abolition is perhaps the the most current of his books because it is not uh, overtly Christian. Not not that those are not very valuable, but that 
in our society, it seems like it may be able to serve as a needed bridge from the relativism that he's that he's going after, the subjectivism, uh, to a more Christian understanding of the world. What, what yep. do you think about its utility there? Oh, it's very useful. I think, uh, again, this is no doubt one of the reasons why, why Lewis based it on, in pure philosophy, um, because he wanted to establish as much of a, a, you know, a common ground with non-Christians as he possibly could. Uh, and in emphasizing the fact that it's not a work of Christian apologetics, we ought to make it clear, of course, that it's entirely compatible with his Christianity, uh, he's he's not by any means sort of um, devaluing or undercutting his Christian commitments, but he's trying to agree, as it were, on a baseline definition of what it means to be human. Because, of course, you can only be a Christian human being if you're first a human being. <laughs> so what is it that makes us human? And his argument here from the, from an ethical, philosophical point of view is is the recognition of objective value. And if you were arguing it from an explicitly Christian angle, of course, you would point to uh, natural theology. You would point to the natural law. You would point to the conscience that God has implanted in every human being. Uh, you know, this is part of what it means to have been made in the image of God. Uh, and all human beings have uh, the natural light. God is the father of lights, as St. James has it in his epistle, a verse that Lewis was fond of quoting. Um, so all men of goodwill, to use that old-fashioned phrase, whether they be Jews, um, Muslims, Hindus, humanists, whatever they may be, all of them who are you know, trying to follow their conscience, the aboriginal vicar of Christ in the soul, to use Newman's definition, um, have a great deal in common with Christians. Uh, and that is something that should be recognized and celebrated and, and built upon. It, it struck me pretty powerfully as, as I was uh, reading through your book and looking at abolition again, because it, it, it had been a few years since I had looked at it closely. And, and in the intervening time, I had read that hideous strength in the, in the, full space trilogy uh, as well but it it really struck me at at how much that hideous strength is really tied to to abolition and that's something you you bring out in this but it's uh it, it really is it's kind of a, a fictionalized uh telling of of the outworking of of these issues that he's addressing in the abolition of man it is um and he says as much in the preface to that hideous strength this this he says is a tall story about devilry, but it has behind it a serious point which I have tried to make in my abolition of man. Uh, and so, yes, at various points in the course of my guide to the abolition of man, I, I point towards that hideous strength um, for examples of where Lewis, you know, fleshes out his ideas in, in dramatic and, and novelistic terms, because sometimes the ideas are perhaps slightly easier to grasp uh, when you see them turned into a story. Um, yes, one particular point I, I highlight uh, right at the end of the book, actually, is, is that moment in, the, in that hideous strength when Mark Studdock is asked to trample on a crucifix by the villains of the story, and, um, and he refuses to do so. He's not a Christian at this point of the story, um, but he looks down at the helpless, nailed, wooden figure on this cross, and he and it, and it brings to his mind a, a realization that that he's now having to choose sides between the straight and the crooked, um, because the nailed figure on the cross is an image of what the crooked do to the straight, and he he suddenly decides that it's better to be straight than crooked. It's better to go down with the ship. It's better to die well than to live badly. And that is a, a dramatization of, of a crucial element of Lewis's argument in The Abolition of Man, that, it is, that death for a good cause is the, is the crucial test of the objectivity of value. Lewis talks about the, the old Latin tag from the poet Horace, dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. It, it's sweet and seemly to die for one's country. And he aligns that 
Roman tag with Christ's words in the gospel, a greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Um, and of course, that, that is the crucial test of the objectivity of value, because when we suffer and perhaps even die for the good, uh, it's of no subjective benefit to us, is it? I mean, if, <laughs> and that goes to prove that the value is objective, because if it were merely subjective, if it were merely just the projection of our own will, well then, we would, we would change our will if it was merely an arbitrary choice on our part so that we didn't have to suffer for it. But we, we realise that, no, we, we can't just wriggle out of, of that sort of situation um, or, or else we become, we become conscience-less. Uh, we become less than human, uh, which speaks again to the, the point I was making about Lewis here trying to establish a, a definition of, of basic human principles. Um, so anyway, That Hideous Strength is a great, great novel, one of my favourites of all of Lewis's output, and uh, I, I strongly advise anyone who's struggling with the abolition of man to, to read That Hideous Strength. It, it may make certain things clearer. I think that's right, and I and on a, a, the flip side of that, I think if if people have read that hideous strength and not read the abolition of man, I think that it will also illuminate the abolition of man or illuminate that hideous strength uh, and and some of the some of the things that he's trying to get across uh, to us that that maybe don't always seem immediately apparent or that might be confusion confusing to the to the modern reader a little bit. Uh, you had a going along with with what you were just saying. You had a a line in your uh, in your conclusion that I jotted down that Lewis knew early on and deep in his imaginative bones that defeat is no refutation, and I feel like that 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 very much goes along with what you were just saying and and this idea of of the the value of norms the value of eternal truths that they are not that they're not based on power um and you know uh t.s Eliot's line uh that there's there's no such thing as a lost cause because there's no such thing as a as a gained cause comes to mind uh that that you can't simply decide what is right uh, by who has won or who appears to be winning. And, and Lewis uh, very much, I think, felt that. And I think uh, others who have defended the tradition and the Tao, in, in his terms here, have, have understood that too, I believe. Absolutely. I, I think this is such an important aspect of his argument that um, subjectivism leads to fascism, basically. Um, you know, scratch a relativist and you find a, a tyrant. Um, hence, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth line about the di the dictatorship of relativism. Um, might is not right, as as you quoted in my appendix. In, in my conclusion, I, I say that Lewis knew early on and deep in his imaginative bones that defeat is no refutation. Defeat, I'll, and I'll quote the next few lines. Defeat, death, loss, poverty, weakness, powerlessness of any kind, these things are not to be simply equated with moral failure. They may be symptoms of moral failure. They may represent the fruits of laziness, cowardice, ineptitude, and so on, but not necessarily. There is such a, thi such a thing as innocent suffering, honourable defeat. It is possible to die a good death. Indeed, it's better to die a good death than to live a bad life, as he records many times over in, in the appendix to the abolition of man. Um, and I think that this is so crucial um, for our own political situation right now, that um, we, we've because we live in a, in a largely subjectivist culture, we, we've lost the ability to arbitrate moral disputes rationally because we no longer believe in, in the practical reason of objective value. Uh, it's now just a question of, of power, uh, of who can establish their voice um, as the loudest voice in a shouting match, who, who can grab the levers of power, be, be it political or legal or um, 
you know, in terms of the media. Um, but the idea of moral persuasion as such, of, of freely arguing to a, to a conclusion about moral matters when you disagree with someone, um, that's just gone out the window. Russell Kirk, who I mentioned earlier, and I uh, was uh, an assistant to him some years ago, but he had a he had a similar uh, quote to one of his more famous uh, quotations, where he said, "I'm a conservative. Quite possibly, I'm on the losing side. Often I think so. Yet, out of a curious perversity, I'd rather lose with Socrates, let us say, than win with Lenin." And that's essentially the same the same mindset that Lewis had, and he was probably writing those words really around a little later than the abolition of man, but uh, contemporaneously with, with Lewis, probably in the fifties and early sixties. Yeah, Uh, absolutely. And uh, in addition to people like Russell Kirk, uh, you know, you've got the work of Alistair McIntyre in After Mm -hmm. Virtue. And indeed I call my book after humanity, partly as a nod to McIntyre's After Virtue. Um, And he, in that book, that great book, After Virtue, which came out, you know, many decades after the abolition of man, makes us makes an argument very similar to to Lewis's, and no doubt to to the, the arguments that Kirk, Russell Kirk, would have made um, when addressing the same sets of issues. Um, I, I quote McIntyre saying that it's easy to understand why protest becomes a distinctive moral feature of the modern age and why indignation is a predominant modern emotion. The self-assertive shrillness of protest arises because the facts of incommensurability ensure that protesters can never win an argument. And the indignant self-righteousness of protest arises because, again, the facts of incommensurability ensure equally that the protesters can never lose an argument either. Hence, protest is characteristically addressed to those who already share the protesters' premises. Protesters rarely have anyone else to talk to but themselves. This is not to say that protest can't be effective. It's to say that it can't be rationally effective and that its dominant modes of expression give evidence of a certain perhaps unconscious awareness of this. Again, what a brilliant thumbnail sketch of our modern age. Um, and McIntyre was writing that in 1981. Um, how, how much right. more accurate is it now than it was back then? <laughs> yes, I, 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 I was really, uh, really struck by that quotation because it, it was written, you know, now what 40 years ago, and it, it also, but it sounds like sort of what we lived through last summer here in the U.S. and we with protesters, and, and protesters are much more likely, and pretty much always. Uh, are interested in shouting down uh, opposing voices, stopping them from speaking entirely, than having what he's talking about there with a, a rational discourse, the the uh, any sort of of actual debate over the issue itself. It is it is an assertion of might makes right. We will simply take this by force and stop stop any discussion. Is is essentially the uh, the solution? If might is right. There can be no place for love in the world. I quote that line from the the great film, The Mission. And I think that's so true that really what Lewis is talking about here is is love, finally. I mean, it's it's dressed up philosophically as the objectivity of value. But but when, you know, when the rubber hits the road, when you have to choose whether to, as it were, you know, uh, die for your friends, die for your country, something which is not of benefit to you, then you are truly loving the other as other. You're doing something which is good for another person, even though it's of no good at all for you, which is the very definition of love. Well, and Lewis is someone who who had lived through that. You talk about, um, to some degree, his his time and the the impact of uh, of World War One, the Great War, on him, and uh, you 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 also quoted a line uh, that that struck me uh, from a and now I've gone blank on the name the Victorian historian who said that if you want to know a writer's mindset, look at what was going on when he was twenty. And I thought that was I thought that was an, an excellent uh, an excellent way to to get some 
insight into not only Lewis but but other people, but Lewis as well as Tolkien were were dramatically impacted, as of course they would be, by the war and uh, the the loss of life, uh, seemingly needlessly. But these people, uh, their friends, laying down their lives out of out of sacrifice and love. Absolutely, the the Victorian historian that said that that line. Uh, was a man called G.M. Young, but nobody can remember his name. So that, <laughs> I mean, nobody, not just you, uh, which is why that line, if you want to understand the man from the past, what, uh, ask yourself what was going on in the world when he was 20. It nearly always gets attributed to um, Napoleon Bonaparte. Ah. But it's one of those famous misattributions. Uh, it took me quite a, an effort to track down <laughs> that it was this G.M. Young chap instead. Um, but yes, when C.S. Lewis was 20, uh, the the First World War was coming to an end. He, he turned 20 in November 1918, which, of course, was the very month in, in which the armistice of the Great War was signed. Um, so if you want to understand C.S. Lewis, look at that, that great you know, epoch-defining event, the end of the Great War, um, was relevant not, not just because, you know, not just for him, grand historical reasons, but for intimate personal reasons, because Lewis himself had very nearly been killed in that war. He'd he'd been blown up by a shell that fell in his trench. He was a young officer in the British Army, and uh, he had a kind of out-of-body experience. He he wrote, wrote about it, that the picture emerged into my mind, here, here is a man dying. Um, he thought it was all over for him. And it was all over for the man next to him, who was just obliterated, annihilated by this shell, um, Lewis's sergeant. And there were other you know, close comrades of his that were killed, most notably a chap called Paddy Moore, whom, who Lewis had done his training with in the officer cadet corps. They just happened to be put in the same room at the billet in Oxford uh, because of the alphabetical arrangement of the rooms. Lewis and Moore, L and M, just happened to be put together and they struck up a friendship and um, they promised each other that if one of them was to be killed that the surviving one would look after the dead man's family and, and when Paddy alas was killed uh, it effectively changed the whole course of C.S. Lewis's life because he he had to keep his promise I mean he he wanted to keep his promise um, and so he lived with Paddy's mother and sister for decades thereafter um, and you know the the right or the rightfulness or the wrongfulness of dying for one's country was was not just for Lewis a you know an abstract theoretical question. It was a it was a, mo a question of great personal moment for him and and his adoptive mother and adoptive sister. Uh, a question raised every morning by the presence of an empty chair at the breakfast table. Uh, you know the the shadow of of Paddy's absence hung over that household um, ever afterwards. So, you know, this was a question, is it good for, to die for one's country that, that they had to grapple with at a very personal level? Um, so I think one of the reasons why the abolition of man has had such uh, an enduring impact and, and still has such rhetorical power is that it sprang from a very deep part of Lewis. He, he wasn't just playing with intellectual counters in this argument. He, he was trying to work through something which which had which had caught him in in its jaws when he was a young man, and and from which he had only just managed to struggle free. What what I mean by that is, you know, the uh, the appeal of of subjectivism. It, it's interesting because you you do talk about. Lewis as as an atheist uh, in, during the war that that it was um, he he was obviously not not only not a Christian but not a theist at all uh, and sort of the the struggle that he went through to make his way to recognizing the Tao you talk about the the influence of Owen Barfield uh, for example yet at the same time that kind of promise that he made to his friend and then the great links that he went to fulfill that promise. I think we would, we would probably say far beyond the call of duty on that. Uh, that was very much 
acting within the Tao. He was he was living that simply out of a, a feeling of obligation uh, and an appropriate obligation, but it it really wasn't consistent with his intellectual views of of what one ought to do as an atheist. Um, why why do you say that? Well, he had uh, as an as an atheist, he was not someone who who viewed himself as as obligated to this to this Tao. That he he viewed himself. You talk about how he he looks at uh, looked at his sort of uh, mess of a life, his his des- uh, unchecked desires. Uh, Barfield kind of challenges him on uh, his understanding. Uh, you know his seri- the seriousness with which he takes philosophy, and yet during that time he makes this promise to to take care of. Uh, his friend's family, and then does so, uh, and and is doing so prior to coming to an understanding of of theism, of of Christian obligation, uh, and and is really doing so. It seems to me, out of by by living within the Tao that he's talking about in the book. Does that make sense? Uh, uh, I think so, um, <laughs> but. You know, the, the fact that he is an atheist doesn't mean that he can't obey the Tao. Is that what you're implying? I, I've sort of lost the track of your your, your logic. There. Well, yes, I, I, I guess he he viewed himself as um, and you, you write about this uh, in, in a, your opening chapters. He, he was looking at himself and and how he was sort of unregulated in uh, in the way he lived his life. He was. He was uh, not really living by any kind of moral code, um, and that he realized that that was a problem, and that that uh, and individuals like Barfield helped him to kind of bridge over into um, sort of an understanding of of morality, and it led him, uh, I guess, through the Tao eventually into Christianity. That seems to be. Uh, that was sort of the tr- the train of thought that I gathered from what you were writing in those in those early chapters. Yeah, well, uh, so the the, the 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 phases he went through in his in his teenage years and early twenties um, are, are quite complicated, and um, tracking the the various stages he went through um, is is tricky, but but it is evident. That he he came to a belief in in the Tao, you know the, this Chinese term that he uses for objective morality, um, long before he became a theist. Um, so, if if I'm understanding you correctly, um, you're you're not saying that he had to become a theist in order to believe in the Tao. No, not necessarily, but but it seems like at least. Lewis himself was quite self-critical of his, uh, of sort of the the way that he had lived his life and viewed his his obligations in general. Yeah, um, a, a part of the the part of what drove him to a belief in the objectivity of value was an awareness of his own inconsistency, that that he uh, he felt moral obligation. Um, but also was aware of his, um, of his inconsistency in in fulfilling his moral obligations, um, and and the very so, and the very fact of his of his discomfiture uh, became for him evidence of the objectivity of value uh, that you know he he wanted to wriggle out of these obligations. But found that he couldn't, and that itself was was evidence for him of of the objectivity of, of morality. Right. So I guess what I'm referring to here is uh, on on page twenty eight of uh, of the book. Um, you said when he arrived at Oxford as an undergraduate in nineteen seventeen, he was he says almost entirely lacking in conscience, though he had a faint disdain for or distaste for cruelty and stinginess with money. 
He was deaf to other moral requirements of chastity. This is a quote from him of chastity, truthfulness, and self-sacrifice. I thought as a baboon thinks of classical music. And uh, so he, it, that, that certainly seems to me to be separated from an understanding of the Tao, as he would understand it, and certainly a, a, a good bit away from embracing the kind of obligation that, that he would show towards his friend's family. Yes, absolutely. And so he, he advanced to a, a more consistent understanding of, of the Tao um, as, he, as he saw many of his Oxford friends, none of them, by the way, Christians, um, who were close enough to him to secure his trust and his intimacy. He, you know, he respected them. He saw that they, they knew and were trying to obey the moral law and that they were doing a better job of it than he was. And so he begins to imitate them and, and you know, regularizes his, his moral life a bit. Um, but he's still not even a theist, let alone a Christian. So, so all of this you know, is part and parcel of his own philosophical journey. Um, you know, he's, he's, becoming a, he's becoming a man. He's becoming a human being who's, who's, be, who's living by, by the natural light. Uh, who's, who's alive to his conscience. You know, he's, he's a man of goodwill, um, but he's still not a theist, let alone a Christian. Right. And, and of course, ultimately, the, the book itself is, is an appeal um, to our society, I guess, to, to, to have the same awakening, really, that, that Lewis did. Um, and recognize those um, those eternal verities, uh, whether whether one is religious or, or even specific, or specifically Christian or not. Absolutely, and and this I think is again one of the reasons why the Abolition of Man is such a useful book uh, to 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 put in into the hands of of one's non-believing friends. Um, and indeed, we have here in, in the UK right now a, a, f- a fairly prominent philosopher called John Gray, who's an atheist, and, and he respects the abolition of man very greatly. He, he devoted a whole BBC radio program to discussing the abolition of man um, a while back and described it as prescient, prophetic, and as relevant now as when it first came out, if not more relevant. Uh, but he's an atheist, um, which just goes to show Lewis's point is is a sound one that there is an awareness of the objectivity of value which people can can come to even without theistic or christian commitments now of course lewis doesn't want people to stay at that purely philosophical basis and indeed he will say that it's it's much easier to defend the objectivity of, of morality if if you if you do advance to a belief in god and the christian god in particular um but but just because uh, philosophy doesn't go the whole way doesn't mean that it's not worth going as far as you possibly can under philosophical steam. Uh, and that's precisely what he's trying to achieve in The Abolition of Man. He says there that though I am myself a theist and indeed a Christian, I'm not attempting here any even indirect argument for theism. Um, and that's again testified to by the appendix in the Abolition of Man, where he where he quotes all these non-Christian sources alongside Christian sources uh, in support of the objectivity of value, because in different cultures, different traditions, different religions throughout time and across the world have have all had major uh, unanimity on on certain questions of, of moral behavior, duties to ancestors, duties to posterity, uh, duties of special beneficence, duties of general beneficence, the law of veracity, um, and the law of mercy, and, and certain other ones that he lists. Um, all sorts of different civilizations have, have recognized these points. Um, and so that's that's not evidence per se of the of the of the uh, the validity of his argument, but it is circumstantial proof. It, it, it's 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 an after the fact um, corroboration of of an argument that Lewis is making that the objectivity of value is 
is is self-evident. It shines by its own light. And un- unless we recognize the objectivity of value as, as a kind of premise rather than a conclusion, we have no grounds for making any moral judgments at all. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. I want to shift gears just a second while I've uh, we've got a few more minutes. Uh, in 2013, you you had the uh, the great honor of unveiling a memorial uh, to C.S. Lewis at uh, at Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey. How did uh, how did that come about? Were you in, involved in in uh, bringing I guess bringing his, the anniversary to their attention and uh, and how did you uh, how did you receive that that great honor? Uh, the Abbey has an educational institute, um, and one of the one of the staff, one of the canons of the Abbey, um, himself recognised that there was this fiftieth anniversary of Lewis's death approaching, and he wanted to he wanted the institute of the Abbey to put on some sort of conference uh, about Lewis's thought, uh, and so he he got in touch with me. He knew about my work and um, asked me for ideas about how we how they might mount a conference and um, while we were having that conversation with him uh, uh, while we were having that conversation I happened to mention to him that Lewis had still not been memorialized in Poets Corner and wasn't it time to do that and he said oh yeah that's a good idea and if you propose that to the Dean of Westminster Abbey I think you'll get a positive response so I, I put together a letter and I, I rounded up seven or eight fellow Lewis scholars to sign the letter and the dean of the abbey at the time john hall got back very warmly and quickly saying oh yes of course um so that's how it came about and um then it fell to me you know having had the idea to um take soundings about what should go on the memorial stone itself um, and we eventually arrived at this famous line of lewis's i believe in christianity as i believe that the sun has risen not only because i see it but because by it I see everything else. Mm, so that, with Lewis's name and dates, is on the stone um, in the pavement of Poets' Corner now. And um, and we had a grand service um, at which it was unveiled um, with, with uh, all corners of Lewis's life represented, people from Belfast, people from Oxford, people from Cambridge, uh, his own his own stepson Douglas Gresham attended. Um, some of his Irish cousins came, and uh, it was a grand, moving occasion uh, and a great honour for me to actually be called upon to unveil the stone. I suggested that they should get in some you know famous person to do it, um, but <laughs> they said, "Oh, it's not. It's nothing big. You you just." You just pull a cloth off the ground, and there it is. It's it's not worth getting in, you know, royalty to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I said, "Oh, okay, if you insist." Um, but it turned out to be, you know, one of the great honors of my life. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's it's wonderful that uh, that he's he is memorialized in that way in that place. That's uh, certainly a place he ought to be, and I uh, appreciate your your efforts in seeing that that happened. I also wanted to to ask you uh, about uh, your conversion to Catholicism a few years ago. Uh, I know it's probably what been eight or nine years at this point, but I was I was curious about the um, the process that happened. Was that sort of a was there an aha eureka kind of moment, or was it a was it a slow pulling of uh, sort of, of of intellectual influence, and what kind of intellectual influence? brought you to the conclusion that that's what you needed to do? It was both slow and sudden, I think. Um, there's that line in that movie, um, The Fault in Our Stars, you may remember, uh, that sort of teenage love story about, I fell in love with him slowly and then all at once. Um, <laughs> and it was a little bit like that, becoming a Catholic, that it was a decision that took 20 years to make. But can also be it can also be um, condensed to one particular conversation by the River Thames in London that I had with a friend. Um, so 
yeah, I was raised uh, an Anglican and became an Anglican clergyman. I, I, I served as a chaplain at Cambridge and then as an Oxford chaplain. And um, was gradually getting um, to have more and more questions about the the authority of the Church of England. I think that that was really what it boiled down to. You know, why why should why should I trust the Church of England to to be an authoritative witness to the Christian tradition um, when it when it couldn't trace its own history further back than the 16th century um and it, it all came to a head one day when when a friend of mine who himself was a, f a fairly recent catholic convert challenged me about papal authority and why i, I was resisting it uh, and my point was that well if if i have to acknowledge the authority of of uh, the Pope, how, how does that differ from bowing down before the authority of any cult leader? Uh, I, I don't want to join a cult. I don't want to have to go and drink the Kool-Aid in Jamestown. Um, uh, but wouldn't I be signing up for that effectively in principle if I became a Catholic? And my friend, rather than dodging the dirty word I'd put on the table, the word cult, uh, said to me, well, what do you mean by cult? Uh, cult is not necessarily a bad thing. It can be bad. It's it's usually used in a bad sense, but cult literally means just a form of worship. Uh, and Christianity has a form of worship. It has a, a constitutionality to it, a constitutionality designed by Christ himself. And and I would always have said that I would follow the the, the leading of Jesus Christ himself wherever he should call me. So I had already, in principle, agreed that, you know, what, whatever was commanded of me, I would have to do. Um, it's just I had never equated the words of Jesus Christ with, with any visible, palpable authority in time and space. <laughs> in other words, my ecclesiology, my, my churchmanship was, was pretty Gnostic. Um, I didn't believe that the incarnation of Jesus Christ had been perpetuated through time and space by 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 a visible institution with with officers and a hierarchy and an organization to it namely apostolicity you know the the apostles college the the 12 headed by saint peter and the, and his successors that's the constitution that's the form of the christian cult and St. Peter is, is Christ's vicar. He's the right-hand man. He's the prime minister to the king. And that's how we can know what the king wants, because as Jesus himself said, he who receives you receives me. Um, he breathes on the apostles and gives them his Holy Spirit and says the Spirit will lead them into all truth. So when I suddenly saw papal authority in that light, uh, it was a great breakthrough moment for me. And uh, I suddenly realized there was no difficulty at all. Um, and I, I distinctly remember that conversation in a pizza restaurant um, just by the river. Mm -hmm. My friend and I were just about to see a Shakespeare play at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Um, and having, having come to that realization, uh, it was pretty obvious that where, where, where things were heading. And, and one day I was walking around Oxford here and I heard a voice deep from within announcing to me, you are going to become a Catholic. Uh, and it was only a question of, of when, um, not whether. Uh, and I can honestly say it's the best thing I've ever done. It's the best decision I've ever made. Um, and uh, anybody who's hesitating on the, on the far side of the River Tiber, I would encourage them to take the plunge. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a swim worth making. I I would agree with that. Uh, I I recently saw that uh, I guess they did one of those religious surveys where practicing Catholics, but I guess we'll we'll call the mass attending Catholics had uh, had gone beyond the number of of uh, church attending Anglicans in in England for the first time. Uh, 
well, since I guess <laughs> the past the past five hundred years or so. Uh, what what do you what's your assessment of of the uh, Catholic Church, the state of the Catholic Church in in England from uh, in Great Britain as a whole? I guess it, from from over here, it seems to be it seems to be growing. Uh, what uh, how does it look there? Um, it's hard to say, you know, I'm, I'm no sociologist. I only see my little corner of the world. Um, but yes, I, I read those statistics too. And I see that, uh, numbers of Catholics attending mass on, 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 on the given Sundays of the year when these numbers are counted, uh, now exceed numbers of, of Anglicans, um, which is n- numerically interesting. Um, um, much of it has come about through immigration. Uh, you know, we've we've had a large influx of Polish immigrants, for instance, and they are all, nearly all Catholics, of course. Um, I think one of the things that I've myself noticed about the difference between Catholic congregations and Anglican congregations um, is that Catholic ones feel genuinely Catholic. That is to say. Uh, in terms of you know, demographics, uh, they're, they're much more broadly based. Ang- Anglican churches are increasingly associations uh, of like-minded people, you know, either like-minded of in doctrine or class or or, so- or social um, category of various kinds. Um, but you go to you go to a Catholic church and you see you know, every colour of person under the sun and the rich and the poor and the old and the young and families and the singles. And it's it really feels genuinely Catholic. And, and that's that's been one of the, the more pleasing aspects of, of becoming a Catholic, actually. Um, not to mention the fact that when I travel abroad, I, I'm able to find the same liturgy wherever I go. Um, again, the Catholicity, which, of course, you can't really find in Anglicanism anymore, even within the UK, um, any kind of uniform liturgy has, has pretty much evaporated. Alas, um, these are changes which have you know come about in my own lifetime. I can remember when the Church of England was was much more, you know, Catholic looking in, in those respects. Um, so whether whether these changes are for the good or for the ill or for a bit of both. Um, I leave that to someone like Stephen Bullivant, the, the great Catholic sociologist, to, to determine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll I'll conclude on this, which which may be uh, the the most the most important thing you've done, which is you were in a James Bond movie. I I saw, so I, I need I need to know the story behind that and uh, and your uh, your interaction with 007. Yes, it's the, the, we, we talked about the great honor of, of, of unveiling the, the, the memorial to C.S. Lewis, but you know the honor of handing James Bond a pair of X-ray spectacles is you know, that, <laughs> that, that cannot be topped. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did the occasional day or week uh, as, a, as a film extra here and there when I was uh, you know a, a younger man uh, in the 1990s. It came about through the film Shadowlands, the Anthony Hopkins film about C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis. Yes, uh, having you know, when when I know that when I knew, when I saw that that was being made in Oxford in 1993, I I volunteered to be in that, and it was quite easy to get into that because it was a big film and they needed about a thousand local people. And having got into Shadowlands, my my name then stayed on the books of the agency that provided extras to filmmakers whenever whenever they came to Oxford or near Oxford, and so I would do you know, odd films and TV shows every now and again. Uh, I was in Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, for instance. I was in um, lots of episodes of Inspector Morse and all sorts of things. And then, yeah, one day they, the agency rang up and said, what are you doing next Monday and Tuesday? And by this stage, you know, I'd been doing it now for about eight or nine years and we was getting a bit blasé about it because often it's quite boring being a film extra. Uh, and so I said, "Well, I, I could I could be available. Uh, tell me more about it. What what is this movie?" And they said, "Oh, it's the it's the new James Bond film." 
Oh, yes, I'm definitely free for that, <laughs> <laughs> I said. And and it turned out to be not only, you know, a James Bond film, but it turned out to be a, a scene in which I got to interact with the actors. Normally, you're in a huge crowd scene and you don't even see the actors, let alone interact with them. But uh, it was just me and three other people, James Bond, Q and John Cleese, um, playing the part of R, Q's replacement. <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, I, I got personal direction from the director because uh, when James Bond snatches these X-ray specs out of my hand, I had to give him an angry look, uh, for which I got <laughs> extra. I got, got good money for that angry look. Ah, very good. Um, so yeah, it was it was a, a weird experience because you know I just turned up at these studios expecting to be in some crowd scene, and then yeah, I'm, I'm actually interacting with James Bond. It's, it was crazy. <laughs> Well, that uh, certainly a wonderful experience. I saw I saw the uh, the photo on your website, and that was I, I hope that you have that one framed somewhere. I do. Yeah, it's it's down <laughs> in my living room. It gives it gives rise to lots of conversation. Yeah, it's amazing that <laughs> this 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 moment, which required really no skill at all and no no training, no expertise, has caused more conversation and I think possibly more envy and that <laughs> than anything, <laughs> well, that's probably true than anything I, i've actually done through my own efforts and skill <laughs> <laughs> well father michael ward i appreciate you being on cultural degree in our conversation the new book is after humanity a guide to c.s lewis's the abolition of man and uh how can uh, how can folks find you online i have a website michaelward.net where you can find out about me and my various doings, my writing and speaking and other things I do. Um, and if they want to find out about After Humanity, the best place to go is, is the publisher's website, wordonfire.org humanity. You can, of course, get the book through Amazon and, and other booksellers, but it's probably easiest to get it through Word on Fire. And Word on Fire actually has a little... Um sort of a, a package deal where you can get a copy of the abolition of man that coordinates with uh, with the design of the book as well and i'll have links to all of these things in show notes so people can, can click on those and find them easily i appreciate you very much being on i've enjoyed it so have i thank you for having me alan um maybe i can come back some other time and we, we can we can pick through more cultural debris Absolutely. There's, uh, there's plenty more uh, that I would love to talk to you about. Thanks for being on. Excellent. Thanks.